Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening to us on podcast, hit that little plus sign up uh, up at the top of your podcast app. Sometimes it's called follow. Sometimes it's called subscribe. Depends on the app you use. But your subscriptions help us out. So do your ratings and reviews. And if you're listening on radio, don't do that. You're probably in the car or in the kitchen and you're going to cut off a finger as you're working on pairing your uh, potatoes for dinner. Don't do that. But later, please do subscribe. We really do appreciate it. I'm Matt Robeson. And two months ago, I wrote an article that appeared in several media outlets arguing that people who really cared about protecting American democracy needed to stop focusing just on the bright, shiny objects at the federal level and start paying a lot more attention to the state and local level. I pointed out that there are not-for-profit organizations that will help you get involved if you're interested in being a poll worker or helping to keep our elections working free of partisan interference. I also tweeted about it. By the way, you can follow me. I'm at Matt L. Robeson. I always appreciate that as well. That tweet caught the eye of one of the organizations that I had recommended to people in that article. The Fair Election Center was established 16 years ago by a prominent public interest attorney named Bob Brandon and a former congresswoman, and it continues to support election reform, litigation, advocacy, student engagement, and yes, getting people to work at the polls to make the cogs and gears of our democracy run. And if that's something you're worried about and you're worried about the interference and the the outright skullduggery that's been attempted to try to disrupt the way our democracy runs, then you should be interested in the work of the Fair Elections Center. Bob Brandon said he'd be happy to come onto the show to talk about their work. I said, I think that's a pretty good idea. He's someone who has long experience in public policy at the federal, state, and local level. You may recognize him from his numerous appearances on national TV and radio shows, although I'm pretty confident that this will be his very best one. Bob, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thanks, Matt. I'm happy to be here. Well, very happy to have you here. And I know that for it's sort of a topic that people might at first blush say, oh, it's kind of down in the weeds, how we run our elections, how we make sure that the counting of votes, the, the the people who work behind the scenes, how all of that kind of gets done on the up and up. Why is that something we should be passionate about? But it's something that you're clearly passionate about. And by the way, so am I. So tell me a little bit more and tell all of us why why the need for the Fair Elections Center? What What gap are you filling and what is it you do and why? Well, uh, thanks, Matt. I, so we do a lot of different things. I started this organization um, for, for several reasons. One, uh, increasingly, uh, election laws seem to be getting more complicated and more complicated. And we wanted to make sure there was a source of basic information for every potential voter, every potential civic organization that wanted to help their neighbors uh, get involved in, in elections. And, um, and also to make sure that the people, the, what I call election heroes, the people that run our elections day to day, the thousands of election um, officials around the country and the hundreds of thousands of poll workers um, get the support they need to kind of make sure elections run well. And it's kind of interesting, you know, obviously we, in the middle of the pandemic and in 2020, we ran the highest turnout election in history. Hmm. Uh, in the midst of a very complicated and difficult situation. And these folks really stepped up and made sure that we had an election that allowed more people to vote than ever, 
vote securely and fairly and safely and accurately, according to all the objective sources that we have. So uh, we've always felt um, election administration needs to be supported. It doesn't get supported much at all levels of government with the funding it needs. And that's unfortunate because we need to do that. And we really wanted to, our organization for years has tried to diversify the pool of poll workers by making it more accessible to younger people, to people that reflect more of the community of voters that they're helping. And we launched a web portal called workelections.org back in 2016 to really simplify the information that anybody needed to get. And then fast forward to 2020, um, right when the pandemic hit, many of your listeners will probably remember some of those early spring primaries like in Milwaukee, um, because people were fearful of the pandemic and the virus and most poll workers are older, um, the number of poll workers that left the scene for during the primary was enormous. Milwaukee, for example, in Wisconsin, who normally would have had 180 precincts open during a spring primary had five. That's how few poll workers they had. So we decided to take the data that we had put together for all the jurisdictions around the country, which took us about four years, and partner with um, a number of business organizations and media outlets to launch what's called Power the Polls. And Power the Polls became a bigger megaphone for the effort and operated in 2020 to identify and recruit and send to election officials over 700,000 Americans who wanted to step up and help their neighbors vote in 2020. And we've relaunched Power the Polls again this year. So people can go to Power the Polls and put in their zip code, put in their town, put in their county, and they'll go right to um, a site that's a simple landing page that gives them the hours of uh, the poll workers are required to work, the amount of money they could make, um, what kind of training's involved, is it online or in person, um, and so on. And so, you know, that's something that's out there. It'll be more important. Uh, we've been using it modestly during the primary season now, but obviously in November, it'll become even more important. And the, the effort, Power the Polls, is something that I also profiled in that article I wrote. I'm going to put links to that and the Fair Election Center into the show notes for the podcast version of this, wherever you're listening to it, podcast, radio, maybe video. <clears throat> Look up those links if you're interested, because I can assure everybody that this kind of work, this kind of basic blocking and tackling, this is, this is the whole ballgame. This is how democracy works, folks. And if you're the kind of person who is worried now, you, obviously, you know, Bob, you, you're assiduously nonpartisan. So I'm not, I don't want to draw you into overtly partisan commentary, but I, in my article, make no bones about the fact that my concern is the outright recruitment of people who are big lie supporters, election deniers, and who otherwise are, are coming into the process or being recruited into the process of working at the polls ostensibly to, to work for Donald Trump and Steve Bannon and are coming in with a partisan intent. And so if you want to step up and try to just be a normal, rational, sane person who wants to help your neighbors make American democracy want, run, work at the polls, I commend Power the Polls to you. And again, those links are right in the show notes. But I do want to bring up another kind of controversial and, and somewhat partisan topic 
one set of, of uh, advocacy work that, that you do is around barriers to voting. Now, the elections scholar Rick Hassan, a recent guest on our show, has made a distinction between what we all recognize as uh, topics that come under voter suppression, barriers to voting that have been erected around the country, and election subversion, which is kind of the sexier topic these days, the subject of the January 6th hearings. And we're not talking about election subversion. We're talking about garden variety, run of the mill, things that, that election administrators or legislatures do to make it harder to vote. You as an organization work against those things. You believe that barriers should be as low as possible. I wanna ask you kind of a philosophical question about that. I don't believe this, but it has been argued to me that some minimum barriers to voting are good, that they're not a problem. For example, New Hampshire, where we're on radio, has same-day registration. And that's something that the legislature has tried to remove. And your organization has advocated against that change. The, the argument here being, you know, everyone's vote kind of counts the same. But people should put in a little bit of effort to exercise their right to vote. If, if Bob Brandon, who is a, a noted public interest attorney, gets the exact same voice as someone who decides on a whim to show up and vote that day and knows nothing about the underlying issues, maybe that's not a great thing. So why are barriers to voting a problem? Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up. Um, you know, first, often the people that say it shouldn't people should be able to be willing to do some things in order to vote are the people that don't ever have the barriers. So right. it's easy to say um, if you're a typical middle-class voter, you've got your car, you've got your driver's license, you have the ability to take off from work whenever you want to go vote. Um, and then say to somebody who doesn't have a driver's license because they don't have a car, that they can't leave work to vote because they have a shift job and they literally can't leave without losing money, um, that, uh, that somehow everything is the same. So you really wanna minimize it. And, and if you really go back to the beginning of some of the, even the, ba the basis of registration in this country started after the civil war and the black codes and an effort to pretty explicitly make sure that newly freed Blacks were going to have a lot of barriers. Now, we know they've had a lot of other barriers since, but registration itself, that's where it comes from. Now, mm. is it a good thing to have? You can have registration. And I'll, just as an example, because you mentioned same-day registration, which is adopted in over 20 states, it's really the fail-safe, because there are plenty of examples where people think they're registered, in, and it's complicated enough that they've moved across town. And in some states, you have to re-register. You have to come up with your new address before you go to the polls, mm. or you won't be able to vote. So um, same-day registration is like the ultimate fail-safe. Um, there's no danger in it because, frankly, you're sitting there as an individual voter right across from the election officials wanting to register. And what better you know, proof of somebody who's actually there. Um, uh, so same-day registration for all the states that have it, and it includes many conservative red states and the blue states, um, the people that we talk to say it's actually a great benefit. 
And once you get the system in place so it's easy to use, um, it saves you the hassle of trying to figure out how come the person who just came in who's been voting there for 15 years now all of a sudden isn't on the list and they can get fixed. Let me, that, I mean, that's a great explanation. And I, I actually, I do find that very compelling that, that this is a way of making sure that administrative hurdles don't overcome constitutional rights. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. What about another argument that you hear sometimes? I, I, I guess this is sort of in defense of barriers. It's sort of the, well, barriers aren't really barriers. They, they seem like it, but maybe they're not. And the example that has come up recently is there's been a lot of focus on what the legislature in Georgia did to, uh, I guess, mess with the circumstances under which people could vote. Advocates said, hey, these are barriers. This is going to make it harder for people to vote. They just had their primary. Turnout was at a record level. Therefore, the, the argument goes, ipso facto, barriers are not barriers. Are there truly more barriers to voting nationwide today? Oh, yeah. Well, so there, there are two things that are happening. Uh, and first of all, the turnout is never a good measure. Um, you can have low turnout races and you can, you can say, well, that must be because of barriers, but it could be just because of disinterest. Obviously, the Georgia runoff had a great deal of interest to it. And in fact, one way to think about it is the runoff in the previous Senate race six years earlier, had I think about a 43% turnout, the runoff. In this past election, it was over 80%, which mm. is a higher turnout than most states have for their regular elections. Um, two things about barriers. Uh, one is putting barriers in place of particular voters. And, and in the case of um, Georgia, you know, it has a large black population. There's a history of voter suppression against blacks. It's pretty explicit. We don't have to sort of prove that. And, and young people, um, there's a lot of pushback about the growing numbers of young people that are starting to vote at much higher levels than they used to. And so um, sometimes increased turnout really has to do with pushing back against an unfair system and a situation where voters say, I'm not gonna let somebody take my vote away. If I gotta stand in line for eight hours, I'm gonna stand in line for eight hours, but we shouldn't have to make it that way. What are the barriers in your mind that worry you the most, that kind of keep you up at night the most in, in the sense that they might skew the outcome. They might, they might disproportionately impact one group. Look, we all know who we're talking about here that are gonna disproportionately remove black voters from the electorate, young voters from the electorate, change and skew the outcomes of elections. Which ones are the big ones that we should well, all be worried about? I'd like to, you know, I'd like to be able to say there's one obvious or one or two obvious ones. Depends on the state you're in because they're all different. And, mm -hmm. um, and also, you know, one, one kind of barrier is the fact that we've moved as a country from election day only voting to almost every state having some version of early voting, voting by mail, you know, and obviously during the pandemic, vote, vote by mail was not just limited to people who had to have an excuse because they weren't able to show up on election day. Those, those changes um, have opened up just more convenience. And as I mentioned, you know, at the beginning, if you have a job, um, 
and you can't figure out when you can get off to vote, you know, having early longer hours stretched out a couple of weeks may make it easier. So one one set of, of barriers are ratcheting down on those. Um, you know, there's a lot of pushback now to try to get all of those changes to vote, vote by mail from 2020 that were necessitated by the, the pandemic to now like shrink them back, get rid of them. Um, take um, drop boxes that were everywhere inconvenient and get rid of them. Texas rule, you know, uh, passed rule, a rule uh, after the 2020 election where, um, you know, in the name of fairness, every county in Texas got one bo drop box. So Harris County that has 8 million people and, you know, some county in the western part of the state that has uh, 30,000 people have the same one drop box. So that seems to be fair, right? Um, but, but um, you know, then, so there has been a lot of restriction on cutting back on early voting. Um, they've been uh, narrowing down and adding voter ID. Montana got rid of the use of student IDs for voting. Pretty explicit effort to go after the youth vote. Um, a number of states have now made it very difficult to um, ask for an absentee ballot. Some have criminalized the sending out of applications to everybody, simply just the applications. Um, so all of those things are pretty explicit. Now, the one other thing that I always talk about is as these things change and people are used to the same kind of voting in the past and now it's changed, it make the confusion and the change itself mm. is a barrier. And then you've got sometimes court cases that intervene. So, you know, we've been successful in the past at blocking some implementation of things. So now something they heard about was going to happen is now not happening. Then the courts may come in and an appeal court may change it again. So the confusion alone is a problem. I know, again, I don't like to pick on Texas, but they deserve to be picked on. No, go ahead. Pick on Texas. No one here is going to object. Um, the, the, the absentee ballot uh, request form this time and the absentee ballot had to match exactly the original ID you used, the ID information you used to get to, to register in the first place, which could have either have been the last four of your social security number or your driver's license or state ID number. So I don't know if somebody's registered for the first time 20 years ago, now they have to remember which number they used because if it didn't exactly match on election day, that ballot was thrown out and there were 10,000 plus ballots in the primary in March that were thrown out in Texas. Wow. And I, I know, I don't know if the legislators think that they're hurting a particular voter, but they're hurting every voter in that situation. It's kind of crazy. Well, and it's interesting because it, it, it raises the question of crazy or crazy like a fox, because the example that you just raised and, and your earlier point do kind of go together that sometimes the confusion I, a cynical person would say that the confusion might be the point, that there were there were instances in New Hampshire, for example, where incorrect information about requirements for identification were sometimes posted, or sometimes just news stories or rumors are spread based on things that politicians talk about. And all of a sudden, you're a group that might be worried, like, hey, if I show up here, Am I going to be in trouble? Am I going to get in trouble? Are my relatives who might not be legally documented, but I am, are they going to get in trouble? We were just talking about barriers and some of the confusion that can be created. The other issue that has come up 
a great deal recently. I, I first cited it in my article where I think we both came to one another's attention. It's talking about your power the polls effort, which I was saying was a corrective to an effort underway at the time uh, from Steve Bannon, the noted former Donald Trump advisor, to explicitly recruit people who had a partisan intent to go work at the polls, to recruit people who are coming in with an agenda to try to challenge people who didn't look like them and, and their right to vote, or otherwise monitor the counting and make sure Democrats weren't getting their votes counted or whatever it is that his purpose is. That was my concern at the time. Since that time, new reporting has emerged, new recordings have emerged of explicit efforts out of the Republican National Committee to, in their words, recruit an army of such people. And there are real concerns. ProPublica surveyed 65 key battleground counties and found that 8,500 new Republican precinct officers had explicitly responded to Steve Bannon's call, signed up to work at the polls. And so now we have a situation where our elections in 2022 and going forward may be run by people who are in there with not pure intent, with, with all kinds of motivations that I'm not sure we can fully trust. That's my concern. In your view, how much of a concern should I have? How, how worried are you about the threat that this influx poses to our coming elections? Well, um, I'm, I'm not as concerned as um, some people might think we should be. And here's the reason. Number one, there's strength in numbers. And if we get average Americans going out to sign up, that's the most important thing to be poll workers. The other thing is you can't do whatever you want to do as a poll worker in a, in a precinct helping people vote. There are laws against intimidation, but more importantly, in every state, there are laws about who can and who cannot challenge a voter's qualifications. In most places, the poll workers themselves cannot challenge from their position as a poll worker. Some states you can challenge as another voter, but, but not as you're a poll worker. In fact, you can't explicitly challenge anybody. You're there to sign up, to sign people in, give them the ballots they're supposed to have and facilitate the election. And you're supervised by election judges and officials who um, have the ability to throw you out if you're disruptive, if you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. So, you know, just as an example, the, the, I think the article you're first referring to is the Politico article that talked about the RNC recruiting people and, and connecting everybody to lawyers so they can call the lawyers from inside the polling place. You can't do that. You cannot use your cell phone as a poll worker in Michigan to call a Republican lawyer to figure out um, how to do more damage during the election. The only thing you can do is call um, the election judge if there's a question, if there's a legitimate question about somebody's qualifications, which by the way, the poll worker can't call out. It's the challengers. In many states, Republican and Democratic Party officials are allowed to put in challengers, but so are nonprofit organizations like ours um, to watch the operation, not to individually. In fact, in most cases, those quote challengers or poll watchers 
have an oversight ability to sort of raise a question with the person running the, the operation in the precinct. Say, hey, I don't, uh, I'm concerned about the way these ballots are handed out. Are you sure you're getting the right ballots to the right people or things like that? Um, so I, I'm less concerned. And I think this is another one of those things where um, beating the drum about this is its own voter suppression. And we don't want people to be concerned that there'll be a problem at the polls. And, and again, I like to say to people, the best way to avoid that, sign up to help your neighbors vote. Be the, be the person there, you know, unfortunately too early in the morning until too late at night. But um, I can say, you know, as somebody who's done this in the past and somebody who has helped recruit many young people for the first time, they might even be first time voters. It's exciting to them to know that they're a basic uh, frontline worker for our democracy. Well, I actually find that very comforting that uh, there are some restrictions there at the poll worker level, at the kind of at the precinct level. But let's take it up a notch. One of the things that's happened over the past week, and I'm just cherry picking a couple of examples. Um, you know, the Washington Post found, for example, that more than 100 election deniers, these are people who buy into the big lie that the last election was stolen from Donald Trump, have won primaries. And so these are people who are going to have potentially positions of higher authority in Washington, D.C. and throughout the states uh, when it comes to administering the next set of elections. More specific examples, in Nevada, an election denier named Jim Marchant easily won the Republican Party's nomination for Secretary of State, which raises the possibility, in the words of the Nevada Independent, the newspaper, that a candidate who fundamentally distrusts Nevada's election system and believes the results have been fraudulent for decades could be in charge of running them. Another example, the three-person Otero County Commission refused to certify, this is in Illinois, I believe. New Mexico, actually. New Mexico, New Mexico, thank you. Refused to certify the results of the June 7th primary because they claimed not to trust the voting machines. I'm quoting again here. Um, they're made by the same company that uh, Donald Trump and his um, cronies falsely accused of switching votes, an accusation thoroughly debunked now under oath by Trump's own inner circle. One of the commissioners, I'm going to mispronounce his first name, Coy Griffin is a co-founder of Cowboys for Trump, and he said in 2020 that the only good Democrat is a dead Democrat, and he continues to believe that Trump won in 2020. So, Bob, you've given me, I, I think, the best explanation I've ever heard about why maybe we shouldn't be quite as concerned about the Steve Bannon effort or the RNC effort to recruit poll workers, because there are, there are limitations on how much monkeying around they can do. But what about at this next level up where there are people who believe elections are fraudulent, they're big lie warriors, and they seem pretty determined to do something about it, are winning these critical positions that oversee the administration of elections? Right. Well, we, we, do, we do need to worry about that. And it is a sad, sad state when it, you know, one uh, one party seems to be running primaries where these people are winning elections. You know, it remains to be seen whether the person in Nevada is going to be elected in the Nevada Secretary of State, who, by the way, has had a 
Republican secretary who's, you know, like many Republican and Democratic secretaries and election officials, they just do their job. You know, right. they're, they want to run elections. They may be partisan in the part of their life, but their job is to run the elections fairly. And Brad uh, Raffensperger, a Republican in Georgia, I mean, he, he, he should get a Kennedy-centered Profiles and Courage Award for standing up directly to Donald Trump in the last election. Well, I think that's right. Uh, and I also, you know, it's, it's interesting that now we have people who are uh, con- considered heroes for following the law <laughs> right, right, and the right. Constitution. But it seems like that's where we may have come hey. to with diminished expectations, it's, right. uh, it's but, a thing. But, you know, getting back to the, the, the concern of some of these office holders trying to do things, we still do have laws in the country. And, you know, we're watching them play out a little bit in this January 6th hearing um, that ultimately, um, you know, we're, we're seeing that the rule of law can be sustained. Um, you mentioned the New Mexico County uh, Board. Um, so they just refused, you know, this was a local election. It's a small rural county, three people that, you know, have no basis for anything other than they probably watch Fox News too much, have decided that um, the primary, which I think was primarily around Republican office holders, because that's a Republican county, uh, they were going to just not certify because they heard somewhere that Dominion voting machines, you know, were the reason that Donald Trump lost the election. And as you mentioned, thoroughly debunked. Within 24 hours, the Secretary of State of New Mexico went to the state Supreme Court and got a what's called a written mandamus, which is in legalese forcing an, an official to do their job, and told them that they had to certify the elections. And then he then she went and filed a criminal complaint for them not doing it. So those elections, those elections are going to be certified. Those officials might be out of a job soon. Not that it's a paid job, but um, but it's an example where you can go so far. <clears throat> now, having said that, you know I don't want to diminish the potential for craziness and monkey business. A secretary of state, just like you know, so Brad Raffensperger did one thing. You know, some people argue that Catherine Harris, who was the secretary of state in Florida in 2000, did something that was much more partisan in terms mm. of ordering the stopping of election counting. Um, but the point is that those election, those positions are important. And we need to make sure that we elect people who are actually committed to running elections, because if we don't have fair elections, then we don't have a democracy. And, um, you know, I think we all agree, no matter what party, what ideology we might have that, um, you know, this experiment in democracy has worked pretty well. And we are, you know, we, we are on the edge here of some pretty bad things, but it seems like uh, if everybody, um, you know, continues to go out and do their job and also support um, full and fair elections, um, you know, our democracy will thrive. There is an irony in this entire discussion that's just sort of dawned on me. For a long time, I've been critical of what, in my view, was sort of the Republican wash, rinse, repeat cycle of making baseless charges about fraud in elections, about people, you know, voting in place of another or people who are not qualified to vote being allowed to vote. And then on the basis of those 
charges, people would tell pollsters that they were now worried about elections. And then they would, again, I'm being overtly partisan here, Republicans mostly would cite people's concerns in polls to say, look, people are worried about this. So in order to ensure people's faith in the credibility and integrity of our elections, we need to do the following things and then repeat, repeat, repeat. We now have a situation where these examples that I just cited, I'm the one who's worried about them. And we are seeing more and more instances like this. You have people who genuinely do not believe in the proper administration of elections or who believe the big lie, assuming positions of authority. And now I'm genuinely worried. And it seems to serve the purpose of advancing the agenda of people who want to put up barriers to voting. It's, it's, it's kind of, it, like I said, it's ironic. And it actually kind of makes me feel bad talking about the entire topic. Now that I've worked myself into a state of deep concern about even discussing all of this, where do you think we are on the health so, of our you know, voting in America? I'm glad you raised this because um, when I started this organization 16 years ago, it was the year, um, just months after I started the organization, that the first photo ID law was passed in Indiana. Mm. Um, and but there were other restrictions. That, you know, we have a, a rich history of you know making it harder for first African Americans to vote, women to vote, young people to vote. Um, and but your point that there's been this narrative about fraud which is a very vague topic. And if you talk to most voters, let's say go back 15 years, when they, when they hear fraud, they go, oh yeah, that's that machine politician in Chicago that stole a bunch of elections. Or you know, they, they don't really know what it means. And, um, but it was, it was a regular drumbeat and it was primarily Republican legislators who used it as a pretext for tightening up the law um, creating things like strict photo IDs where they knew many people didn't have access to them. And again, it was, it was this broad fraud notion, yet IDs are really only going to help if somebody is pretending to be somebody else. And there aren't any elections around that have been won because enough people pretended to be somebody else than they were that they overwhelmed the voting system. You know, that's not that's not really, the ID has nothing to do with fraud that ever really exists. I mean, you may hear, you know, 10 people, their spouse died just before the election and they were, you know, wanted to make sure that uh, their vote counted. And so they snuck in their ballot or, you know, sent it in for them. But, um, you know, th those are minor things, but this pretext of fraud continues and it's, uh, you know, then it got it hyped up in 2020, so a whole lot more restrictive legislation was passed. But it hasn't; it, it's been this way for 10, 15 years now. Um, and and now, at the same time, there are other states that are moving in a good direction. You know, so just um, you know, just recently, New York State passed a lot more reforms. Um, uh, Massachusetts did the same. It's interesting. People go New York, Massachusetts. Those are blue states. Why aren't they? You know, those are those are have a history. Those states have a history of machine politics, and machine politicians tend to like the voters they already know, and they're not really that wild about opening it up. But 
you know, that's finally happened with a lot of pressure from average voters and organizations um, in those states. Pennsylvania did the same thing. It dramatically opened up. They used to not have any um, voting for uh, absentee voting, except if you literally were away from the jurisdiction for 12 hours of the day. So you, we had, we almost went to court in Pennsylvania because um, uh, ER nurses, uh, policemen, firemen who had 12 hour shifts, if they happened to live in Philadelphia and vote in Philadelphia, they literally couldn't vote mm. unless they sort of somehow got covered for their, you know, the day that they had their, their shift uh, in the hospital or, or, you know, on the police speed. Um, so those, those are opening up and, you know, and that's a good thing. And at the same time, we're seeing too many states moving in the opposite direction. It brings up really an important point, which is it does seem like the battle itself, which, whichever side of the partisan divide you're on, the battle itself is bad. It degrades when we, it's like the full faith and credit clause when it comes to our money, our currency. There's sort of an intellectual currency. There's a democratic currency that exists in this country. And as we degrade that by using charges and counter charges about the elections to, to try to impugn the other side and delegitimize any victories for the other side, we're also degrading the underlying faith in the process, which kind of brings me to, this is sort of a personal hobby horse of mine, but you raised the very first voter ID law about 16 years ago in Indiana. And there are, there are different flavors of voter ID laws. This is just the most common, commonly cited barrier. There are strict and non-strict, there are photo and non-photo, and there are mixtures of all of those. I've long thought that there would be a basis for a compromise on this that would involve having some kind of voter ID requirement that isn't strict and that is very, very broad on what could qualify. There is another set of concerns that are raised about, well, what if you need to update your voter rolls? Well, there is a, there's a voluntary clearinghouse for a coordination among different states for updating, hey, you've moved from Ohio to Michigan, so let's make sure that we've got this voter in the right place. Could you make that federal and, and make everyone collaborate a little bit more? You might be able to do that. There are questions about, well, what if, what if it's confusing? What if you have too long of an early voting period or different standards for, for mail-in voting? My point is, it seems like if people really brought a good faith to a discussion about this, you could come up with on either the state or the federal level, a set of policies that everyone could live with and that would not be discriminatory in their impact toward one group, young voters, black voters, uh, Latino voters. Uh, that's just me. What do you make of that? Do you think that there is a set of reforms that everyone could get around and live with? Sure. Well, at first I would say, you know, the federal legislation that was attempted this year that got blocked did have a lot of these minimum standards across the country that would be, a, be available. Um, but, you know, the, an ID law is fine. And the Help America Act that was passed after the Bush v. Gore right. um, um, presidential uh, election does require any first-time voter to have an ID, but it's a list of 12, 15 IDs. It's anything to show who you are. Those kinds of IDs make sense. That's the difference between strict ID and not. And so... 
you want to, um, uh, you can do that and at the same time say, okay, let's have the, all these IDs available. We'll make them available. And if you have an ID, then when you show up, you can register same day. You can, you know, expand the opportunities for it. So yes, the answer is you could, you, you certainly could do some of that, uh, but you need to have legislators on both sides actually legitimately wanting to come to a conclusion that is not to get a partisan advantage, which I'm afraid too often now is what we've got. I want to just mention, because you mentioned the, the situation where states swap information about yes. registration. Um, we've been involved in that issue for many years. And when it started, um, the effort to do that was notoriously inaccurate. And you'd wind up with similar names showing up, even people with similar names and the same birth date looking like they're the same person, but they're not. So there is a, a system that's been created by election officials called the Electronic Registration Information, Eric. It's, um, it's Eric. Yeah, I remember that much. <laughs> and, and it has like 13 different data points to match so that you um, you have a much more likelihood that you'll get an actual match and not a false match. And because you, the last thing you want to do is throw somebody off the rolls who shouldn't be thrown off. And I can give you an example. This is what um, has been tried in a number of states. They're going to try it again in, in Arizona. They did it in Florida, where we were part of the litigation group that stopped it. Um, taking a look at people who show up as permanent residents when they get their driver's license. So they're re recently in the country legally. They get their driver's license. The vast majority of those people are on their way to become citizens. Driver's licenses in Florida last 12 years, I believe. So this one Republican secretary of state decided they'd match all of the people that had permanent resident driver's license with the current voting rolls. And they wound up showing they had thousands of people that are obviously non-citizens who are on the voter rolls. And when they went and drilled it and they tried to get everybody thrown off, which we were able to stop. But when you looked at it, it was 99% of those people were now citizens. Mm. Uh, be, you know, which only made sense. So you, you have to be real careful about why using databases that just never accurately, particularly when it comes to denying somebody the right to vote. Well, I think that's a great example for the overarching theme of this entire show and, and everything we've been talking about, which is people say the devil's in the details and half the time they're wrong. The angel's in the details. It's, 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 it's always been a belief of mine from my work on Capitol Hill or campaigns that we tend to get caught up in highfalutin ideas of here's what matters, democracy. The, those are important, but it's, it's, the, it's the ground level work, the spade work of organizations like yours and those details. And yes, people volunteering to help their neighbors to vote that really makes things run. So First of all, people, check out Power the Polls if you're interested in getting involved. And Bob Brandon, thanks so much for running through all of this incredibly important information with us. <laughs>